We are continuing our series today called First Things and talking specifically about the church. And so we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Let's read and then pray together. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this place because it is your place. Lord, your people are your people and you have made your home in us. God, as we gather in this place, you are with us, you are leading us, you are teaching us and guiding us. And God, I pray that today you would be exalted, that your people would be built up and that we would see Jesus in the church. God, I pray that if there's anyone here today who's struggling with with faith in your presence, I pray that you would supernaturally ignite their faith to trust in you. God, if there are people here who do not know you and don't know what it means to be in the presence of the Lord, I pray that they would experience you in this place as the gospel illuminates the truths of who you are in their hearts. Holy Spirit, come and lead us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I met Jesus in 2002, back when reality was a college ministry in Santa Barbara. And for about a year, my friends and I would commute all the way from Lompoc every Friday night to hear the preaching of the gospel. But we were never really a part of the church. I never actually became a part of the church back then. And I remember when I started dating Katie, my wife, a few years later, her father, who was a pastor, asked me where I went to church. And I got super spiritual with him. And I said, wherever two or three are gathered, there Jesus is among them. And my father-in-law, being a faithful, godly man, gently and graciously, but quickly corrected me. And he said, we have to be a part of the church. And he, I'll never forget the story that he told me. I, I remember it was uh, uh, something that I, I later heard was something that D.L. Moody used to say, which was, he said, if you take a coal from a bed of coals and you put it aside, what will lose its heat first? Will it be the coal or the bed of coals? And I knew exactly where he was going with this. See, a coal removed from the bed of coals 
will quickly lose its heat faster than the community of the coals. If you take a Christian from the church, you remove them from the fire of God's people. Now, last week, right? You all heard me say, every believer has the Holy Spirit. But without the people of God, without the church, we're left to our own ability to stoke our own fire. But the importance of the church is not in its pragmatism, right? It's not because like, well, uh, I go to church because of what I get out of it, right? If we only go to church because of what we get out of it, then as soon as you stop getting that thing out of church, you have no reason to come to church. And you hear people say this all the time. I tried the Jesus thing. I tried the church thing, but it didn't work for me. Right? We, don't, we don't go to church because it, 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 it works for us. The beauty and value of the church is not only in what it does, but in what the church is, in the church's identity. This text gives us a beautiful picture of the identity of the church. First, the church is the people of God. The church is a people. It's not a building. The church is not a place. It's not a parking lot or a street corner. The church is not events. It's not Sunday mornings. It's not ministries. It's not programs. The church is a people. The church is the redeemed people of God. The church is you. You are the church. It's not something we go to. It's something that we are, whether in a cathedral or a converted warehouse or in a parking lot. When we gather in the name of Jesus, we gather as the church. Peter says that the church is made up of living stones being built into a spiritual house. Our lives come together into something beautiful as we follow Jesus together. And this means that when you commit to a church, you're not committing to a location or to a building or to ministries or to a pastor. You're committing to a people. You're committing to one another. You're committing to a community of believers. And when these believers gather together, when we come together as a church, Peter says that something amazing happens. Starting in verse five, he says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, a spiritual house where priests make sacrifices is a temple. Peter says that the church is a new temple. He's using temple language. And if the church is the new temple, then the church is the place of God's presence on earth. Hear that for a second. For those of you who are new to the faith, for those of you who have been in the faith a long time, don't miss out on this. The church, the people of God is the place of God's presence on the earth. The temple is all about God's presence. It's all about the presence of God. The temple is where heaven and earth meet. According to scripture, heaven is where God lives and earth is where humans live. Psalm 11.4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heavens. So heaven is where God lives and earth is where we live. 
And the temple is where heaven and earth come together, where God and people live together. And so a biblical understanding of the temple begins all the way back in Eden. There's temple theology from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And these two realms coexisted in Eden. God walked with the people in the garden. And so Eden is this this garden temple. Even the language that God uses to describe the work that Adam and Eve are supposed to do in the garden is temple language. They're called to work and to keep the garden. And in the original language, these words are also the words that are used for the priests and Levites in the work that they do in the temple. So in the very beginning, Eden was a place of God's presence on earth where humanity served as priests. This is temple theology. But we know that something happened. Something awful happened. The humans sinned, and so they were expelled from the garden and away from God's presence. Because of their sin, they could no longer have unrestricted access to the presence of a holy God. Heaven and earth were ripped apart. And then in Genesis chapter 11, a group of people have what they think is a very brilliant idea. They begin to build a temple, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a temple. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens so that there would be this structure on earth that would reach the heavens. They were attempting to ascend to God. They were attempting to return to the presence of God, but humanity cannot ascend to God. Every other religion will be about humanity bettering itself to make itself better so that finally we can be acceptable to God. But, but humanity cannot ascend to God. God must descend to us. And God did. He made a way for the people to experience his presence in the tabernacle and in the temple. But access to his presence was heavily restricted. It had to be restricted because of sin. The people couldn't come and go as they pleased. Something had to be done about their sin. And so the law regulated their access to God by prescribing how sin was to be dealt with. And then still the priests were mediators between God and man. The priests were the ones who represented humanity before the throne of God by making sacrifices. And then the priests would come out and pronounce forgiveness of sins on behalf of God to the people. So their access to God was restricted. God was with his people, but the people could only worship from a distance. And so the temple... And through all the activities of the priests, the people are able to encounter the presence of God from a distance. So when Peter uses this temple language to describe the church, don't miss what he's doing. For a Jewish person to say what Peter is saying, don't miss this. The temple is no longer the place where heaven and earth meet. God doesn't live in a temple made with hands. Peter says that the church which is the people of God, is now the presence of God in the world. When people 
once had very restricted access to God. Now by faith, God has unrestricted access to his people. Reality Carpinteria. Do you have any idea what you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know what God is doing in this place? By the presence of the spirit of God within us, today we are the house of God, more beautiful than any human hands can make. God has built himself a home in the community of believers. This applies to the universal church, every believer in the world. And this is made visible in the local church, us right here and every community of people who've put their faith in Jesus is God's dwelling. Now, I hear people say all the time, and maybe you have heard people say, that they experience God in all sorts of places, right? We experience God in nature. We experience God in music, all sorts of things. I was walking with another brother on the beach the other day and we saw a portion of what I'll tell you was the brightest rainbow I've ever seen in my life. God is reflected in that. There's something beautiful about God reflected in those things. We can observe creation and see God's handiwork, but the church is where he lives. It's the difference between listening to a song on the radio and the artist inviting you into their home to write a song with them. God is writing a song with you, church. He's making something beautiful with you. A song of praise to him. Now we can know a lot about God by observing him in nature, but we are invited to experience him in the church. See, a temple is more than just providing a place for God. It's providing a place for us to experience God. And now the people of God is where the presence of God can be experienced. Again, someone might say, but what about the Holy Spirit? I can experience God with the Holy Spirit that dwells in me alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not going to take away from that. But there are just some things that we can't experience about God, uh, that we can't experience from God in the same way without people. And this should make sense. Remember last week, we talked about God's complex identity as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God in and of himself is a community. And we were made in God's image. So it would make sense that the way we reflect God's image would require other people. You cannot live a biblically faithful life as an image bearer of God without other people. It is not possible. Take forgiveness, for instance. You can know that you are forgiven by God. And Praise the Lord. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are forgiven by God. But until we mess up royally and experience forgiveness from another brother or sister in Christ, we don't have the opportunity to experience that tangible forgiveness from the body of Christ. I remember when my wife and I were dating, uh, we'd been dating for probably about a year and uh, I knew that I wanted to marry her, 
But I also knew that if we were going to get married, there was things about me that she was going to have to know. That we had been, we'd been slow to get there, but she needed to know about my past. And I'll be honest with you, church. I thought she was going to dump me for sure. I was a mess before I met Jesus. I was a little bit of a mess after I met Jesus too. I'm still a mess. Let's, that's just all the, all the, all the walls down, right? Praise the Lord. So we go for a drive and I spill my guts. And I said, I totally understand if, if this is the end of us. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, I love you. I forgive you. And it was like hearing the voice of God himself. The church is the body of Christ for a reason. The people of God for a reason. We're the temple for a reason. That when we experience grace from people, when we experience love from other Christians, when we experience truth and forgiveness from brothers and sisters in Christ, we are experiencing it from God himself. Because this is where God lives. I think one of the reasons that we don't experience God's presence in the church as often as we should is because we come to the church with our walls and our defenses up. I'm doing it right now. You just witnessed me trying to make my life look a little bit better than it really is. We come into church with our walls and our defenses up. But if we aren't going to be honest about what's actually going on in our lives, if we're not going to be honest about how we're actually feeling, then we don't actually give the body of Christ to meet us where we are. And in a sense, God is still present in the church, but we're not present to God. We're still keeping God at arm's length. He's inviting us into his home and we're saying, I'll come, but I ain't talking to you. We keep him at arm's length. But when we bring our full selves into the community of believers, God is ready and willing to meet with us. This is his home. This means not only being honest with one another about what's going on in our lives, it also means that we have a responsibility to receive the people who bring their mess into the church. As God has received us in our mess. We don't just come bearing our shame our guilt, we come knowing, knowing that we'll be received, we'll be accepted despite our shame, despite what we've done. But the church doesn't only exist to experience God's presence. We're not to be some elitist community who guards the gates of the church and guards the presence of God. We're called to share his presence with those outside the church. Look at verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, this language is a little bit similar to what Peter has already said, right? Priesthood's in there, holy is in there, right? But it has a very different emphasis. Peter is using language from Exodus 19. I'm just going to read Exodus 19, this little passage here. It says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. This language is language that God uses for Israel as a nation. And Peter applies it to the church. Again, Peter, faithful Jew, don't miss what he's doing. Peter is taking words that God speaks over Israel and applies it to Christians. Now, if temple language in this passage is all about God's presence with his people, then the Israel language is about God's mission to the world. By using language referring to Israel and applying it to the church, Peter is saying that the church is not only called to be the place of God's presence in the world, but is called to manifest God's presence to the world. Again, listen to this. You, church, God lives here and displays his glory, his presence, his character by the way you live as a community, by the way we worship, by the way we love one another. God's presence is manifested to the world. See, God, God's plan for giving Israel the temple was not so they would isolate themselves away from the rest of the world. They were supposed to be distinct from the world so that God's presence would be seen by the world and that the world would be attracted to it. God's plan has always been for the nations. God's plan has always been for the peoples of the world. Remember Babel, right? When they built the tower God comes down, he confuses their language and he scatters them across the face of the earth. But in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a man, Abraham. Not so that he can say, I'm done with the world, Abe. I'm just focusing on you and your family. Forget the rest of them. It's just you and me. No, he says that Abraham would be blessed so that All the families of the earth, everyone from the previous chapter, remember context, every family, every person from the previous chapter who's now been scattered over the earth would be blessed through Abraham and his family. God's plan has always been for the nations. And so Abraham's family eventually becomes the nation of Israel and God gave them the law and the temple and the priests. But God also calls the entire nation a kingdom of priests. And so remember what priests do, right? They're the go-betweens. They walk the line between heaven and earth. They represent God to the people and they represent people to God. Well, what the priests were supposed to do in the temple, Israel was supposed to do on a global scale. Since God dwelled in the midst of Israel in the temple and had given them the law, they were supposed to be a kingdom different from all other nations. They were supposed to reflect God's holiness and his wisdom to all the other nations. The nations were supposed to look at Israel and see God in their midst and be attracted to them to come from the ends of the earth to Israel to worship God in the temple. And we see glimpses of this in the Old Testament. Uh, A great example of this is Solomon, the queen of Sheba coming from her land to Solomon to listen to his wisdom is a representation of the nations coming from all over the earth to Israel to see what God is doing. Another example would be Naaman. Naaman, the Assyrian who had leprosy, who comes to Israel, to Elisha, to experience healing after washing in the Jordan River. These are examples of what Israel was supposed to be. But ultimately, Israel failed in their calling. 
Instead of the nations being attracted to God's righteousness, the nations were repelled by Israel's self-righteousness. See, Israel continued in the sin of Babel, right? They used the temple and they used their special status to exalt themselves over the people instead of inviting people into. They separated themselves from the nations and prevented uh, people from coming into God's presence in the temple. There's an example of this in the gospels. So there's a place in the temple called the court of the Gentiles, sometimes also called the, the outer courts. This is the place in the temple, the closest place where the non-Jewish people could come to the presence of God. And Jesus shows up to the temple one day and sees in the outer courts, sees in the court of the Gentiles, all kinds of animals and money changers and all kinds of buying and selling going on there. So the nations literally physically could not actually come into the place that was for them to worship God. And so Jesus overturns the temples. He makes a whip. This is serious business. Starts driving them out of the temple and says, because my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus will not have the people being barred from approaching the presence of God and worshiping God in the temple. Israel had fallen so far away from their calling to be a light to the nations that they shut out the nations completely. But Peter says here that the church is now invited into this calling to manifest God's presence to the world. Now, I have to be really clear here. The church does not replace Israel, right? This is a mistake that we can make. We can say that, well, Israel's done and now the church replaces Israel. And, and so that's, that's what God's doing. That's not what's happening here. Rather, the church is grafted into the people of God and share in the mission of God's people to bless the nations. All who have believed in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, are the people of God and are called to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So now instead of the people coming to God's presence in Israel, the church has an opportunity to bring God's presence to the people. Is this what people think of when they talk about the church? In your conversations with your non-believing friends, even just in your own mind, is, is this what people think of when they think of the church? Do they think of a place where God lives and a place where God's presence is manifested to the world? A place where the goodness of God dwells and God's goodness and grace and loving compassion and all of those, and the blessing now just pours out of this place to all the people around us. That's not what people say. That's not what they see. To be honest, I think the church can be guilty of that same sin of Babel. We use the name of Jesus and the Bible to exalt ourselves and call down to people and say, come up here with us. And if anyone dares make the climb, they look around and they say, you're just as messed up as I am. The church is full of hypocrites. They don't practice what they preach. The problem is not with what we believe. The problem is not with the moral standard we're striving for. The problem is that we're not trusting grace. 
In the same way, we shut God out by not bringing ourselves to him. We also shut the world out by not being our true selves in front of them. We're broken mediators. We're broken priests. We don't represent the people well to God and we don't represent God well to the people. In our brokenness, we don't experience God's presence in the way that we should. And because we're not experiencing his presence, our witness is hampered. We're broken mediators. And instead of being honest about our brokenness, we often make people believe that we have it all together. But the church isn't a place where people are just striving to be better than we are. We come to the church because God is here and he accepts us despite who we've been. It doesn't matter what you've done this week, this month, this year, today. It doesn't matter the thoughts that you've had even during this service. You are accepted by the grace of God Because of what Jesus has done, you are accepted into the house of God despite anything that you have done. It's grace. And when we have that grace, when we understand that grace, when we accept that grace, when that grace becomes real to us, then it doesn't matter who knows what about me. God already knew it. I am fully known and fully loved. You are fully known and fully loved. There is nothing you could do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. There's nothing you could do that would cause him to expel you from his presence. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. God's grace has brought you into his presence. No matter who you are, Your testimony is not, I'm super smart, I'm awesome, so I found Jesus, and then he made me even better than that. Sometimes that's the way we share our testimony. No matter who you are, our testimony is, I am lost without him. I am crushed without him. I am in darkness without him. But he found me, and he shed his light on me, and he is leading me to himself. He found me and called me his beloved, even when I'm covered in filth. Sometimes that filth is self-righteousness. So even for those of you who can look at your life and say, I've never done this. I've never done that. I've never done this. That self-righteousness in you also needs grace to be forgiven. If we're not honest about our mess, check this out. If we're not honest about our mess, then we actually rob people of the opportunity to see God's transforming power in us. It was January 2006. I was in my car and I was, my, my parents weren't believers. And I made a New Year's resolution to pray for my parents. I said, God, I'm going to pray for my parents' salvation. Uh, I want you to save them. But God, I'm confused. Haven't they seen a change in me? And I will be perfectly honest with you. God said no. And it wasn't because I hadn't been transformed. It's because I'd been living a double life my entire life. My parents never saw the garbage. So my life was transformed, but they never saw it because I was never honest with it. Never honest about it. If we're not honest with our our stuff, 
then even when God does show up in power and redeem us, we won't be able to talk about it because we'll still be ashamed of it. But if we bring it into the light as he is in the light, we will find that your sin, your shame has no power over you. As soon as you speak it to the body of Christ, you experience the grace that you have been taught that God has for you that Christ himself has for you. There's no power over you. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just say it. I have no doubt that right now there are people here who have something in their mind or something that you are not trying to think about right now. That thing that you don't want to tell people. I'm not going to make a command. I'm not going to tell you, you have to do this. I just beg you please bring it into the light. Tell somebody. Tell someone what's going on. That thing that that you're doing that you can't stop. The thing that you've done that you're ashamed of. The thing that's been done to you that you think if people would find out, they'd think about you differently. Please, please, for the glory of God, for, for, for your redemption, for your freedom. Will you invite somebody into that? Because God wants to do a work of power in your life. And people will see it. But we have to be willing to talk about it. What deliverance do you need? What shame do you carry with you in the darkness? Bring it into the light. And I understand this sounds terrifying. What will people say if they knew blank? What if I lose my whatever when people find out about me? I wish that I could tell you that's not a real thing. I wish I could tell you that no one will judge you. I wish I could tell you that no one will shame you. I wish I could tell you that culture won't try to cancel you. People might reject you and they might have all sorts of reasons for doing that. I'm not going to lie. But you'll be in good company because the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, back before concrete, foundations of houses were made with cut stones and the builders would scrutinize every stone to find one that was perfectly square and they would set it up as the cornerstone and the rest of the building the rest of the structure would be built off of the shape of that cornerstone if the cornerstone was wonky at all the building would be misshapen and so Jesus was rejected by the most important people of his day, the builders, the religious leaders didn't like Jesus, didn't like what he's doing because it was interfering with the kingdom that they were trying to build. So they rejected him and crucified him, but the scriptures say that in God's sight, he was chosen and precious. And so God raised him from the dead. He is not a dead stone. He is a living stone. Jesus is alive. God raised him from the dead, vindicating him and is building the community of faith upon that cornerstone. Peter says that Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders, but was chosen by God to be the foundation that the church was built upon. And when we believe, 
When we come to him, our lives take shape around him as we are united to him by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. The reason that the church is the new temple is because we've been united to Christ. Through faith, Jesus, fully God and fully man, in his body, God and humanity coexist. Jesus is the true temple. Humans could never ascend to God, so Jesus is God's presence descending to us, uniting us to him. Leaving the glory of his heavenly kingdom to bring good news to a, uh, to a rebellious world. He is the true Israel. Inviting all people to experience the presence of God in him. And yet he was rejected because he didn't fit their categories. But in his rejection, his descent from his glory in heaven was made complete. He experienced the worst that the world could devise. Mocked, beaten, crucified on a Roman cross. The world tore down the true temple to protect their way of life. But Jesus said, tear this temple down and I'll raise it in three days. That's exactly what God did. God raised him from the dead and made him the cornerstone in the temple of God's people. The world may reject you for your faith, for your sin, for your ideals, for whatever else. The world may reject you, but if you have faith, God will never reject you. And so church, this should be what the world sees in us, a people of grace, a people who have received mercy and extend mercy. This community, loving and receiving one another, treating one another the way we have been treated by Jesus, laying our lives down and sacrificing even being rejected on behalf of the truth, behalf of the gospel, on behalf of our brothers and sisters. When we follow the stone that the builders rejected, who has become the cornerstone, when we follow him and we are rejected, God allows the world to see his manifest presence in the church. Reality Carpenteria, do you know what you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know what you were made for? Because our mission is born from this identity. We are the place of God's presence. We are able to make his presence known in the coastlands and the nations, not only by worshiping him together, but by declaring this good news and demonstrating his love. And when we do, not only do we have an experience of him, but the world will see it. And the world will come not to us, but to him and know the salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ. This is who we are. This is what we've been called to. This is what we're striving to be by his grace and his power alone. Church, would you pray with me? God, I am amazed by these truths that you would do this, that you would make your home in us. Father, this church is your people. We belong to you and you can do with us whatever you want to do with us now and in the future. 
And we know that you are good and we know that you are gracious and we know that we have received mercy and that we will receive mercy. We know that you've called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We know that you desire to love us and to forgive us and to shower your mercy and grace upon us. And we know that you desire that no one should perish, but everyone should come to the knowledge of repentance. And we know that you desire the people in Carpinteria and the coastlands and the nations to know that you are beautiful, to know that you are good, to know that you are the one that we have been longing for. God, forgive us when we make church out to be anything other than pointing people to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. God, help us to be a people that not just sings about you, that not just preaches about you, but help us to be a people that manifests your presence in the world. God, do this because we can't. We can't do this without you. I don't want to do this without you. God, Moses said that he didn't want to come into the promised land if you wouldn't go with them. God, if you don't go with us, if you're not here, then we're just spinning our wheels. But you are here, Lord. You are here in power and in grace and in love and compassion. And so God, I pray that we would see you in this place. I pray that the world would see Jesus in the church. Help us to do that by actually believing that grace is real and living accordingly. We love you, Lord. We, we praise you. Have your way. Be high and lifted up. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.